democracies world over are becoming more liberal than ever. Jesus consistently upheld the Old Testament law. He didn't obviate it, i.e. he didn't remove it. He didn't change it. If God said the law is a just law, the law is a merciful law, the law is a beneficent law, Jesus did not change that. Why? Because Jesus said not one jot nor one tittle shall in any wise pass from the law until all is fulfilled. And he said, anyone who breaks one of these, the least of these commandments, or teaches anyone else to do that, is the least in the kingdom of heaven. He said, I am not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. So what's he doing here when he says, but I say, is not obviating the law, but saying, let me clarify what God meant. I speak for God. May you walk in the spiritual subsequently. Matthew chapter 5. We're continuing our podcast on the Master's Manifesto. This is podcast number 20 in our series. We come to a very, very potent, insightful and misunderstood passage of scripture. Matthew chapter 5 verse 38. Listen as I read through verse 42. You have heard that it had been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man shall sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go, a mile, go with him too, give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not, turn thou, turn not thou away. End quote. One element of the democratic philosophy of life is that we all have certain inalienable rights. We all have rights. And we are big on rights. In fact, maybe in our societies we've never been bigger on rights than we are today. We are hyper-conscious of our rights. We have movements along the line of civil rights, women's rights, children's rights, prisoners' rights, and every right that we can think of. We have unions to demand rights for the employees. We are very conscious of our rights. In fact, it's not uncommon in our society to hear somebody say, you'll never get away with that. You can't do that to me. I'll get even. You drive or you're driving and you pull in front of somebody a little more closely than you thought. There is no contact, but you dent his psyche. Road rage will, will follow, however mild, demanding his rights to a certain area of the road upon which no one was allowed to infringe. Deep down in the human heart is a retaliatory, vengeful, spiteful spirit, part of the curse of sin, and it's there in all of us, and it comes out in most strange ways. I always remember the story of the bride and groom who got in the horse and buggy days and rode off on their honeymoon and the horse bolted. And the guy said, that's one. Horse bolted again, he says, that's two. The horse bolted yet again, he says, that's three. Took out a gun and killed the horse. And his wife said, that's terrible. Why, you can't do that. He said, that's one. Deep 
down in the human heart is this retaliatory, get-even kind of thing. And in our society, frankly, we make heroes out of the kind of people who take nothing from nobody. They are the strong, the tough, the courageous, the macho. And our society looks down on the meek and the non-retaliating, gentle and forgiving, gracious, merciful person who demands nothing from anybody and we say he's a weakling and a coward. It's part of human nature to not let anybody get away with anything until you've told them or let them know they can't do that to you. Basically, that's at the heart of the Jewish miscomprehension of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Give them what they're due. That's the way it was being applied in Jesus' time. It had become a license of, for vengeance. It had become a basis for a vengeance, for a vendetta. It had become a sort of biblical permission to have a grudge, to strike back. But Jesus said, if somebody hits you on the right cheek, give him your left. If somebody sues and takes your coat, give him your cloak. If somebody asks you to go a mile, go too. And if anybody needs what you've got, give it or loan it. That's antithetical to everything in human society. That's, that doesn't cut it with the human heart. I've noticed something interesting in our fight for our rights. Inevitably, when a fight for rights takes place in a society, the upshoot of, of it is going to be lawlessness. Because when people begin to live on the basis of their rights, then a dominant selfishness begins to take place. And when you have a whole lot of people being selfish, they will invariably tread on each other. And in a fight for rights, what is lawful sort of gets pushed into the background. Everybody has that in them. And we have a sense of justice. And I believe that's the image of God, a sense of justice. But in the fall, the sense of justice became perverted into a vengeful spirit. And it isn't so much the idea that if a person does something wrong, we want it to be made right to uphold the law and to maintain a righteous standard so that God, who made the righteous standard, can be glorified. It's that we want to get even. And that's the perversion of a moral righteousness given us in the creation of God. Instead of that, we have just a retaliatory spirit. And that's what James talks about in James 4 when he says from whence come wars and fightings among you they come because you lost because the normal desire for justice is perverted into vengeance and grasping and retaliation and that's why we have war so in our society everybody fights for their rights and we are so big on rights right now that we are just setting the law aside we have a vengeful society if we don't get our rights and parents give their kids <coughs> what he wants. Then you try to discipline, then you try to discipline him. And basically that's what society is saying. Contrast the fight for rights, the demand for your due, with what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Let's hear him. He says, Have we no right to drink and to eat and drink? Have we no right to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as the other apostles? And is, 
and, and is the brethren of the Lord and Cephas, that is Peter, or I only and Barnabas have we no right to forbear working? In other words, Paul says, I'm a minister of the gospel. Have I no right to earn a living doing that? Do I have to work to earn my living? Don't I have a right to be paid for my ministry? And he says, don't I have a right to marry? If I so choose and take a sister to be a wife, don't I have a right to those things? Yes. Nevertheless, he says, we have not used this right, but we endure all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. In other words, Paul says, my life is all about setting aside my rights. Romans 14 and 15 says, don't use your liberty to make somebody else stumble. We have rights, but rights can be offensive to somebody else. And if pushed far enough, our grasping desire for our deal and our rights literally obliterates law. This is precisely the issue to which our Lord speaks here in Matthew. He contrasts, contrasts the ethics of his kingdom, which is forgiveness, seeking nothing, no defensiveness, no self-protection, no rights for me, with a grasping, retaliatory, spiteful, vengeful, grudging spirit. It characterizes society. Let's see what he's saying specifically. Jesus speaks in this particular part of the sermon. He's speaking directly at the form of religion developed by the scribes and Pharisees. And you see, they believed that they had attained self-righteousness on their own merit. They believed that they were able to enter the kingdom of heaven on the basis of their own self-righteousness that they had attained in the standard of excellence by law, by legalism, by ritual, and they masked the reality of their sinfulness. And Jesus is busy in the Sermon on the Mount ripping off their masks, stripping their hypocrisies so that they'll see themselves as wretched sinners. You say, isn't that rather unkind? No. The kindest thing you ever do for anybody is show them their sin so that they know they need a savior. Nobody's going to come to a savior unless they know they need one. And so Jesus tears off their, the masks that they might see the sin. He has already showed them that in spite of what they thought, they were murderers. In spite of what they thought, taught, they were adulterers. In spite of what they thought, they were liars, as we saw the last time. And now he's going to show them that in spite of what they think, they, are, they were filled with vengeful, spiteful, grudging spirits, not characteristics of the kingdom of God. And they betrayed their sinfulness. Jesus is reiterating God's standard to them and saying, you fall short. Now, this passage has led to some confusion in many people's minds. People have used this passage to teach lawlessness. They've used it to teach pacifism. They've used it to teach conscientious objection to war. They've used it to, to instruct an anti-capital punishment. They've used this passage to bring about a disbelief in justice and civil law. I mean, this is not untypical. This passage has confused a lot of people. We can't get all through it, this podcast. We'll have to finish it next time but I want to lay a foundation. First, we have to note the principle of Mosaic law, then the perversion 
of Jewish teach, teaching and finally the perspective of, of Jesus like we've done in the last two or three podcasts. So let's look first at the principle of Mosaic law. Verse 38. And it says here, you have heard that it had been said. Now basically that refers to their tradition. But in this case, it was an exact quote from the Old Testament. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now they are trying to play holy and he's trying to show them they are sinful. So he picks another illustration and he says, all right. He says, you go on the principle, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's how you operate. That's what you have been told by your rabbinical traditionalists. But behind that, it's interesting that that is a real Old Testament quote. They had just shifted the emphasis and messed up the interpretation as they so often did with the Old Testament. This passage is fantastic in putting into balance and perspective where the law fits in the life of a believer. The Bible upholds the law, upholds law and order. The Bible upholds that whole area. While we can talk about forgiveness and we talk about turning the other cheek, it never is to the detriment of what is lawful. And and we'll see that as we go, there is a beautiful balance in this. And if you see your way clear through this, you'll understand that. All through the Bible, God exalts law. God made society to be lawful. In fact, you read the minor prophets and you will hear God over and over indicting Israel for unjust judges, for unlawful acts, for inequalities in their nation. Law is an essential thing. Romans 13 says that the people put in positions of law are the rulers or the agents of God, that government and authorities are ordained by God. It's very clear. Now, if you want to know why God gave the law, listen as I read 1 Timothy 1, 9 to 11. The law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for, man, for manslayers, for warmongers or whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, that's homosexuality, end quote. And in the fight for homosexual rights, we are obviating the law, removing it, that God has ordained to, pre- to preserve a righteous standard. Always in the fight for rights, the law gets scuttled. Because if you let man have their way, or if you let men have their way, the things they want are unlawful because men are evil. And so the law is given to stop this. The law is given for men stealers, that's kidnapping, for liars, perjured person, and if there be any other kind, any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to 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 our trust now god gave law to protect righteous men against ungodly evil men and at no point in time are we to remove it some preachers preach that what jesus really was saying is we just need to get rid of all the law no that's not it at all there must be law you say if we are to forgive 
if we are to turn the other cheek, if we are to, re if we are to never retaliate, if somebody sues us, if we don't fight him, we just give him everything we've got and more. And anybody wants to borrow, we just lend it. Where does the legal recourse come? Where is the balance? What happens if somebody commits a crime against me? Do I just say it's all right? Brother, it's all right. After all, would you like anything else? Take anything. Is that what we do? We just turn him loose. We just let him go. We just let them all go and just forgive them. Is that what this is saying? Or do we uphold the law and punish them? Is that what it's saying? Well, I hope you want to find out. Let's look again at verse 38. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And I'm telling you, that kind of stuff is merciless. That's, that's bloodthirsty, Old Testament stuff. And you know, some of the old critics of the Bible used to say that that was used, that, was a, that, that there was a different God who wrote the Old Testament. The God of the New Testament is not the God of the Old Testament. I mean, the God of the Old was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Whoever does anything to you, get them back. And he pokes your eye, poke his eye, knock out his tooth. Is that what he's saying? You know why people interpret it that way? Because that's the way the human heart is. And that's not, but that's not the way God's heart is. And that's not what it means in the Old Testament when it says, when it says that. Let me help you. Starting in Exodus 20, you have the law of God basically codified and system, systematized. And in the 20th chapter of Exodus, you have the moral law. That's between man and God, a woman and God, the moral law. But in Exodus 21 to 23, we have the civil law. The moral law is taken care of between a man and God. The civil law is taken care of within the framework of magistrates and judges and courts and duly constituted authority. God instituted judges and magistrates and authorities to take care of civil matters. You have three times in the Old Testament where the phrase an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is mentioned. All three of these times relate to a civil situation. They relate to something occurring within a duly constituted authority. A judge, a, a magistrate, etc. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is not a statement that is in any way related to personal relationships. But in fact, that's precisely what the Pharisees had done with it. They took a divine principle of ju judicature, a divine principle for the courts, and they made it a matter of daily vendettas. Let me show you why I say that. Let me give you the three scriptures where this phrase is mentioned. The first is Exodus 21 verse 22 in the civil law. If men, quote, if men strive and hurt a woman with child so that her fruit depart from her and yet no mischief follow, he shall be surely punished according as the woman's husband shall lay upon him and he shall pay as the judges determine. In other words, you harm a woman with child, we won't go into all the possibilities. 
there could be harm where she doesn't lose the child there could be harm where she does lose the child but the point is then the husband has the right to seek some damages and the judge will determine this is a civil situation the husband doesn't go and get a club and beat up the guy this is not vigilante approach this is not personal vengeance in order for there to be structure in law and order and in order for there to be preservation of society you cannot have personal vengeance and so even in the old testament in civil law there were judges to deal with these matters so the judge determines so we continue in exodus 21 if any mischief follow then thou shalt give life for life eye for eye tooth for tooth hand for hand foot for foot burning for burning wound for wound stripe for strife let's say you've got a servant and you get mad at your servant and you haul off your belt at your servant for some reason or the other you knock his eye out and you wound his eye so he can't see or the eye of your maid what does the law say it says you shall i'm reading towards the end you shall let him go free for the truth sake in other words within the framework of civil law god had god was protecting the weak from the strong he was protecting the good from the evil by saying there will be just recourse and you can notice throughout these verses the word judges the term judge judges it is a civil matter this is not a matter of personal vengeance if you're a servant and your employer knocks out your tooth you don't catch him at an unwary moment and knock out knock his out you would go to the court in israel and you would say this is what happened it will be confirmed in the mouth of two or three witnesses and the just you would be given to you you would be set free the slave will be set free and so this would tamper the master's treatment of his slaves or temper the master's treatment of the slaves if he knew that he he struck his slave and his slave lost the tooth and he lost the slave that's a high price to pay the law is a restraint and when justice is enacted speedily and equitably it has a great effect on society there is a second use of this same phrase in leviticus 24 if a man cause a, a uh, uh, cause a blemish in his neighbor as he has done so shall it be done to him bridge for bridge eye for eye tooth for tooth as he has caused a blemish in a man so shall it be done to him again in other words there is to be equity the punishment is to fit the crime and it is a civil setting the third one deuteronomy 19 one witness shall not rise up against a man for any equity or for any sin in any sin that he sinneth at the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established if a false witness rise up against any man to testify against him that which is wrong 
then both the men between whom the controversy is is shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges, which shall be in those days. And the judges shall make diligent inquisition. And if the witness be a false witness and testify falsely against his brother, then shall he do unto him as he thought to have done to his brother, so that thou put the evil away from among you. You know, how to get rid of evil in your society? Give just punishment speedily for people who commit crimes, even perjury, as in this case. And those which remain shall hear and fear, and henceforth commit no more any such evil among you. And thine eye shall not pity. Notice this. There is no place in the law called for pity. That's what that, th those several verses are saying towards the end. And thine eye shall not pity. Pity is not in a law court. The law demands justice. If society is to be preserved, there must be justice. The court is not the place for pity. If the judge feels sorry for a rapist and lets him go, and then he rapes a nine-year-old child, that judge, that judge will have to feel pity for the little girl. The court is not a place for pity. It is the place to hold the standard of righteous law high. Why? Because that and that alone will preserve society and put fear in the hearts of men. You take a sinful man, innately sinful, with a depraved nature, and give him his rights, and he'll run right into chaos if you don't make consequences for his behavior. And I tell you, parents, start it with your children. If there are no consequences in the behavior of your child, they will never learn what it means to live a righteous life. Never. And so he says at the end of Deuteronomy 19, 21, life shall go for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. In all three of those passages I just read, you will see that the law was for the civil courts. It even mentions judges and magistrates several times. The point is this. The law was never to be taken into the hands of an individual. God knew that that would be utter chaos. You cannot have anarchy and preserve society. So the intent of the Mosaic law was to, ground, was to control sin. And in this case, the sin of anger, violence and revenge. Do you know that this law is the oldest law in the world? Did you know that? It's called, it's known as Lex Ta Leonis. It's the oldest law in the world. We found it in the code of Hammurabi. Sometimes it is known, it is called tit for tat. Sometimes it is called pre, it's called quid pro quo. It just means equal punishment for the crime. Tit for tat. It says this. If a man has caused loss of a gentleman's eye, his law shall be caused, his eye shall be caused to be lost. If he shattered a gentleman's limb, one shall shatter his limb. In other words, bound up in the human heart is a sense of justice. But the problem is, it gets perverted into vengeance. This law is a good law. It's a law to put fear in the hearts of people. That law doesn't do anything at all but good for righteous people.
it protects them. And people say, oh, you know, we can't have all these laws. It encumbers us. Listen, the more strict the law, the more protection for the righteous people. All they affect negatively are people they ought to affect negatively. Evil people whose evil is out of control. Let me give you several thoughts. First of all, it's a just law. I'll tell you why. It's a just law because punishment should fit the crime. That's exactly right. Secondly, it's a merciful law. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is merciful because it limits vengeance. It does away with vendettas. It does away with blood feuds. You know, in Nigeria, particularly in a certain part of our country, we have blood feuds between Christians and Muslims. One Muslim or one Fulani man or a herdsman kills one Christian. And rather than the law to take effect and go for that particular man that has done that crime, the whole village goes to the other village and kills everybody in sight. No, no, no. The law says only the person who committed the crime and only the commensurate with the crime should be the punishment. It is a merciful law. It puts a lead on human vengeance. Thirdly, it is a beneficent law. It was designed, as I said, to protect the weak from the st against the strong, the peaceful against the violent. Our suffering society gets everything twisted. We talk about rights so much now that it seems often today that the criminals have more rights than the honest people. Our suffering society is overrun with, with crime and violence and would do well to re-examine the Old Testament law. But you see, once you deny God and once you let that go, everything else is gone. I believe the pulpit has to be the place to put this all back into perspective again. We have to preach a just character in the heart of God and we have to enact a just lawful discipline in the church and we have to preach an eternal punishment in hell. Why? So that the world knows there is, a, there is right and wrong and reward and consequence. And I believe when the pulpit went liberal, when the pulpit stopped preaching the character of God and stopped preaching hell and eternal punishment, and the church stopped disciplining sin, that society just fell into the floor. Maybe we can lay the whole thing at our own doorstep. If we've got an effeminate generation that wants to abolish capital punishment, turn prisons into country clubs, relax justice in a violation of good God's law, maybe it's because we haven't proclaimed it the way we should have. That's the legacy of liberalism. To restrain evil is merciful. To restrain evil is beneficent. Not to restrain evil, not to have punishments, not to have the things the way they should be, is to allow evil to run rampant and everybody pays the price. Author Pink says, Magistrates and judges were never ordained by God for the purpose of reforming reprobates or pampering denigrates but to be his instruments for preserving law and order, and that by being a terror to the evil. Romans 13 says, 
they are to be an avenger to execute wrath on him that doeth evil. He's right. There is to be terror. The law has been ignored because God's character has been ignored. Because a sense of eternal punishment has been ignored. People, because the church doesn't even bother to discipline its own people. Pinkfather says that consequence, sorry, conscience has become comatose. The requirements of justice have been stifled. Emotions and sentiments, concepts now, emotion and sentimental concepts now prevail as eternal punishment is repudiated, either tactically or in many cases openly. Ecclesiastical punishments are shelved. Churches refuse to enforce sanctions and wink at flagrant offences. The inevitable outcome has been the breakdown of discipline in the home and the creation of a public opinion which is mawkish and spineless. School teachers are intimidated by foolish parents and children and children so that the rising generation are more and more allowed to have their own way without fear of consequences. And if some judge has the courage of his convictions and sentences a brute for maiming an old woman, there is an outcry against him. This is the legacy in democratic countries. And so Jesus, whatever he says and says, upheld the Old Testament law. He didn't remove it. He didn't change it. If God says the law is a just law, then it is a just law. Says Jesus says, I speak for God. When he said, but I say, he's not removing the law. He's speaking for God. The Old Testament also teaches in Leviticus 19.18, Thou shalt not avenge or bear any grudge against the children of thy people. That's the same good book, same author, Moses. You should never hold a grudge. You should never avenge. Or if there is a crime committed, then you should seek the law to do its work because that preserves society and exalts God. Who wrote the law. Proverbs, I can't help but think of the recent NSAS protest in Nigeria, just watching as policemen were lynched publicly. This is human vengeance. The Old Testament says if your enemy hungers, give him bread to eat. If he thirsts, give him water to drink. But it also says if he commits a crime, take him to court, to the judges, to give them due punishment for his crime. Now, I'm sure we can debate this last statement that I've, um, I've just made. But um, this is what God says. Proverbs 24, 29 says, Say not, I will do so to him as he has done to me. Don't say that. That's vengeance. Now, Jesus knew that justice should take its course. And he knew if they died without repentance, they'd spend eternity in hell. Yet his heart was a heart of forgiveness. So when I catch that man in my house who killed my cha child, I must forgive him in love of Christ. And I must tell him about Christ. And I must feed him. And I must do that. But on the other hand, I must let the Lord take its course. Because this that is to uphold the divine standard. I cannot say I will do so to him as he has done to me. Well, you see, how do you find the, this kind of balance 
where you can uphold the law of God and still in your heart be free to forgive. Very simple. At least the concept stated simply this. The only person who is non-defensive, non-protective, non-vengeful, never bears a grudge, has no spite in his heart, is a person who has died to self. Right. What is there to defend? What is there to defend? If I die to self, what is to defend? But if I'm going to fight for my rights, then I prove the point that self is on top, on top, of, the, on, of, on top of the throne. Self is ruling. Jesus had died to self in the sense that he had abandoned himself to the Father's will. And so if he died, he died. Paul had abandoned himself to the Father's will and died to self. So that he says, if I live, I live to the Lord. If I die, I die to the Lord. Selfishness is defensive. It's protective. It's vengeful. It's spiteful. It's re reactionary. And so we are to have the spirit that Jesus asked for. We are to die to ourselves. The heart of the matter, then, is to understand what it means to die to self. Maybe this will help. When you are forgiven or neglected, or purposely set at naught, and you sting and hurt with the insult or the oversight, but your heart is happy, being counted worthy to suffer for Christ, that is dying to self. When your good, when your good is evil spoken of, when your wishes are crossed, your advice is disregarded, your opinions ridiculed, and you refuse to let anger rise in your heart or even defend yourself, but you take it all in patient, loving silence. That is dying to self. And when you lovingly and patiently bear any disorder, any irregularity, any annoyance, when you can stand face to face with waste and folly and extravagance and spiritual insensitivity, insensibility, and you can endure it as Jesus endured it, that is dying to self. And when you are content with any circumstance, any food, any offering, any clothing, any climate, any society, any solitude, any interrup in interruption by the will of God, that is dying to self. And when you never care to refer to yourself in conversation or to record your own good works or each after any commendation from others, when you can truly love to be unknown, that is dying to self. When you see your brother prosper and have his needs met and can honestly rejoice with him in spirit and feel no envy or question God while your own needs are far greater and your circumstance more desperate, that is dying to self. And when you can receive correction and reprove from one of less stature, than yourself and can humbly submit inwardly as well as outwardly, finding no rebellion or resentment rising up within your heart, that is dying to self. Ask yourself a question, are you dead yet? If we are to know the balance between holding up the law of God in an evil society and pouring out a heart filled with forgiveness, filled with love and empty of any vengeance, empty of any self, it will be when we learn what Jesus meant when he said this. If any man will be my disciple, 
let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Let us pray. Father, I think of the words of the Apostle Paul, whose great prayer was that I may know him by being made conformable to his death. We learn from the sufferings of Jesus Christ how he responded in his heart, forgiving the very crucifiers. Being reviled, he reviled not again, only reaching out in love. Father, that spirit, may that spirit be in us. May we die to self as Christ did, in the sense that he obeyed the Father's will, even in death. May we be willing to crucify ourselves. May we not be defensive or protective, like Paul in 1 Corinthians 4. May we not justify ourselves. God, help us to know the balance between holding up your law for your glory and the preservation of righteousness in society and having hearts of forgiveness even to the people who break that law even if they break it against us and wound us in the breaking teach us to die to ourselves and to live unto you we pray in christ's glory amen <music>